All righty. You guys, uh, welcome to Southern Pub- Public Podcast, episode 21. Um, we have uh, the Hunting Beast guys, um, Dan and Mario on. Um, man, it's a pleasure having you guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, all right, well, what y'all got? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, here, let's introduce ourselves so you know who you're talking to here. I'm Jamie. Um, Doug and I started this uh, Southern Public podcast. Gosh, it was, it's only been since August, August, August. of last year. Yeah. yeah. So we're having a good time, and this whole saddle hunting thing has uh, kind of, helped us speed the process up quite a bit and we appreciate your all support in that as well yeah, it's definitely definitely blown up uh here the past couple of months so oh yeah but i'm doug uh this is <laughs> I'm, I'm shane <laughs> i'm josh so so really just a couple of redneck dudes from northwest florida we are man just <laughs> yeah. like the camera setting up on two boxes of of moultrie cameras you know <laughs> so turn the the living room into a into a podcast studio so every everything we tv and everything happens in the den so yeah but it do works, what you have man. to right it works so you got you guys want to tell us about beast gear what it encompasses the whole nine yards sure i can i can start out with a little bit and then let dan uh tell tell a lot of his background and his story um so dan and i first met geez it's hard to remember now i don't know 10 years ago or more it's gone by really fast but anyways when we first met we started thinking about making some different types of mobile hunting equipment I'm really back in probably 2015 or so, 2014 is when we first started talking about it. And a lot of it was just through shared experience that we had hunting together. Um, Dan has a long background in working in a variety of things in the hunting industry, including R&D and machining and whatnot. So we started putting together some ideas of what would be the ideal mobile climbing stick. as well as tree stands and other equipment that we would use. And these conversations led to, I'll let, I don't want to take away Dan's thunder, but led, led to Dan uh, going into his, what I call his lab, because he's a, he's a machinist and coming up with some different types of prototypes. And I think what people maybe don't know about, about beast gear is that we really formed these products off of our human problem of, wanting to have a more efficient piece of equipment that we could use to go in and hunt in these remote locations. And that's what really spawned developing the products. So we really did our first soft release of products in 2017. And I say soft release because it wasn't mass to the public. And we started out with producing our our version one of our climbing sticks. And then in 2018 is when you know, we had an e-commerce site and we released to the masses. And that was really what you know now as the beast climbing stick, beast gear climbing stick. And I think, you know, some of the unique things that that brought to the market were a design that removed all moving parts. 
um, a very aggressive standoff that gripped the tree with, with multiple points of contact, and then uh, angled fixed double step, and of course, lightweight. So these, and we can get into some of the other features, but those really key features back in 2017, it wasn't commonplace in the market as you know you may see now i mean you guys have been previewing and using a, a lot of different companies products but those sort of key features are are what we we focused on to start out with and um but really rooted in this community of mobile hunters and helping them learn about hunting and learn how to how to do do it better and it kind of spawned these products and ideas so how long did it take you to get that final product yeah dan if you want to talk a little bit about just what we did you know from a prototyping standpoint i think and how long we played around with this stuff in the field you know yeah uh i would have to say uh total time was probably like uh what do you think mario six seven years maybe i mean we're always well, tweaking wow. um you know, I had an idea what I wanted, and uh, me and Mario discussed it quite a bit. And uh, we basically, when we first started this, we just wanted to build ourselves better equipment. We didn't even want to market it, or at least I didn't. Um, but the product was so good that uh, um, Mario was really like, well, we, gotta, we need to hit the market with this. <laughs> he was right. Um, but uh, I just really wanted to develop something that worked. I mean, everything out there that was, you know, when we started was built for guys you know, using portable stands you know going in and setting a position and uh climbers weren't working for us because uh we found the big bucks were always living on edge you know and uh edge had uh limmy trees um a lot of times where i kill my biggest bucks is out of bushes we need something to get into little tiny shrubs and trees where other hunters can't get so um, we just kept tweaking and developing, and uh, eventually uh, uh, we got what we wanted, and uh, just went from there. Is the the sticks that are out on market now are those the ones that you finalized, or have you kind of tweaked it along the way the last few years? Uh, they've they've tweaked slightly, but they're pretty much final now. Yeah, I mean they yeah. they're. Uh, there's not much you could do to make those any better. Dude, I'll tell you that at these events we've had, um, just the, the aesthetics of it, it's cool looking stick. You know, you can't not see that, but the, how much they weigh is the first thing everybody notices. And first thing I noticed. It, it, yeah. They're I mean, super light. So it's a, it's a cool product. And that was that your, your only thing at the time you started. Yeah, yeah the first kind of thing was the sticks, yeah. yeah. And and uh, really, there's a lot more into that than a person realizes because we actually uh, um, tweak the, the way the, uh, the points touch a tree and how it would work on every diameter of tree that we wanted to hunt out of and uh, sat there and tweaked the positioning and where those points would be, you know, for months. You know, yeah. kept going back and forth into the woods, trying it. And uh, we'd both try it, make sure it locked to tree. Um, and then after we had those points tweaked, then to take the magic of shaping it like an antler and, you know, doing that kind of stuff too, yeah, right. the cool aspect of it. Um, but that's the thing. I mean, once we had that done, that's not what other people are doing. Most people that are making 
archery equipment and no offense but they're hunters they're not really people in the industry and i got a big advantage that uh, i'm an r&d guy by trade i run an r&d department i uh invent things in machine shops um to make machinery work so i'm an inventor basically in a machine shop who's you know so it's like the perfect combination to have a good hunter who hunts mobile in a machine shop you know and and doing an r&d type work where i invent stuff so i know how to fix all those bugs so anytime i have an issue i know how to go through the system to correct that well other people don't so that's why when we had ours done why when you take that thing you put it on a tree it, it holds on so well and stuff is because of the stuff we tweaked into there you know now a lot of companies are you know following suit and copying what we were doing and and they're starting to come along now too but uh you know, I still think we have the superior product. Yeah. And to your point, like what kind of geared or well, pushed me towards saddle hunting, one was Doug. He, <laughs> uh, he was the first one of this bunch to do it. So it was peer pressure is what it was. It was totally peer, peer pressure. pressure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, but to your point just a minute ago, that being able to get in a tree, because here in, in the South, um, everybody uses climbers and we all climb pine trees because they're straight, tall, and, you know, you can get way up there. But the bucks, like you said, are in places that people aren't, they can't hunt. So right. with a saddle and a set of sticks, you can get in those, those young planted pines. You can get in those oaks that are out in the middle of a clear cut that a climber can't get in. So it's, uh, it's kind of opened up hunting again, like made it super fun again. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, and some of the other things we thought of while we were going through just the prototyping process of actually trying these on the field. So, you know, Dan and I actively were hunting with other equipment that predated this stuff. And then as we started designing and making these, there was sort of this epiphany that, you know, the just like the whole placement on the stick itself, you know, there was a lot of thought that went into how we could arrange those holes and how many we could put in that would still retain the proper strength of the stick, but allow it to be as lightweight as possible. And then if you look at the, the feature of the step itself and the fact that it it's angled um, the way it is coming up on each point of the double step and the slotting of the step on the tube, that was all put in place because as we would climb different sets and different trees with the legacy equipment, you would often get on angles so you never find yourself being straight up and down on a tree. It, you're always cantered to some extent. So when you'd step off and on your top stick or you're climbing up the tree, there was always a challenge with, well, where's my foot placement? If I've got a folding step that I'm flipping it back and forth, or I get my foot on the end of the end of the step and it would have a tendency to slip off with bigger boots. So how we designed that step was to eliminate all that guesswork you know you had a fixed double step that's angling up towards the top side of the tree with elevated points on each end of the step and what that does it allows you to get that stick on an angle on the tree and then you combine that with the way that the standoff is designed and with multiple points of contact and the way that that bell-shaped antler is curved you can literally make contact with the tree no matter if it's a, a smaller diameter, a larger diameter, or you're putting it at an angle. And that really allowed us to, 
to make a lot of safety improvements in what we we're doing because if if we would hunt on these edges or fringes we'd feel much more confident that we could get up in it climb up into position and be safe and secure both going up and down and it yeah, was just it, it was more efficient like we're kind of efficiency guys when it comes to when we get to the base of the tree we want it simple and straightforward of going up and down making as little movement as possible you know right and the orientation of the standoffs make a difference i didn't whenever i got mine and and put them together i, I put them on upside down and oh, they, sure with the angle yeah yeah so they definitely grip better if you've got them facing the right direction <laughs> yeah. yeah and that angle allows it to when you cinch it with the strap it'll cinch tight to the tree and when you pull down on the bottom we advise people you pull down the bottom and push down and it cam locks into that tree literally to the point where a lot of times you'll pop the strap off and the stick will be <laughs> stuck on the tree in position but it really locks in and makes a, a firm and prevents kick out you know a lot of other sticks that were on the market uh still have that problem with with kick out where if you bumped it from the bottom or you nudged it the the bottom part of the stick would fly out yeah and for new saddle hunters that can scare the crap out of you yeah oh yeah yeah mobile hunters period yeah. right well yeah so yeah. so what do you what's your what's your long term what's your end goal with beast gear our end goal um Quit yeah that's a, a <laughs> yeah not have a real job anymore um i you know obviously we want to keep growing in size i the i think the biggest thing the biggest joy that dan and i get out of this i think is the the whole experience right so when when we can give this equipment to the public and they have that same realization when they go out and use it for the first time and they realize how much more efficient it could make their hunt and it can get them access to areas that they never thought they could hunt before and then they start putting together the tactics of mobile hunting you know a lot of the things that dan has taught on his youtube channel on his various blogs and everything um they start putting all those pieces together and then they they talk about it you know or they share it like this is a success story i have i can't believe how how great this was you know those that kind of reciprocating um uh feeling is probably the the, the biggest reward that we get out of this whole whole endeavor you know that's awesome well so we've talked about the ins and outs of the the stick and and we're i've never been a, a lock-on guy but i know doug he was lock-on did you guys hunt yeah i've hunted lock-ons yeah stuff like that so i'm not i was a strictly a summit climber and uh so getting into saddle hunting uh through doug's mentorship is uh is really it's for guys here in the south because you guys being from up north a lot of people up there know about the way you guys hunt here in the south it's kind of new i'll say new because we pretty much hunt that beast mode you know we were we're out there hunting the same way you guys hunt in the north but we're doing it here in the south but as far as this mobile hunting being lighter smaller frames and just getting out there where where a lot of other people aren't getting that's kind of 
new, I guess. You know, it's a different way to hunt here in the South. So, yeah, I think the, I mean, I could share my learning curve in this whole thing was, you know, even in the Midwest, a lot of people still, when they grew up, they grew up under a kind of traditional setting where they hunted maybe out of fixed stands, either on private or public property, right? They had locations that they often visited, they were spots. And whether they set up their ladder stand or a fixed hang on, they were focused on prepping those spots and going to those locations and sort of waiting for the deer to come to them, right? the concept that shifted in my mind was that, and I started, I started the transition of going from that to using a climber. And then the climber allowed you to move when you saw deer in a certain position and you tried to get as close as you could to that movement. Um, I think the next phase of that is being mobile is one of the most important parts, but now how can I, how can I turn it around? How can I go out and do scouting and gather information and actually be more aggressive or more intentive as to where I'm setting up because I, I have an idea or I know that a deer based on my scouting is living in those areas. And I'm setting up on that bedding area on where they're living, knowing where they're gonna come out with intent and I'm setting up for that. And that's really where this equipment and the tactics kind of come together and it's a change in a mindset. You know, you don't you stop hunting spots and you start hunting you know sign concept based on on what you've scouted and it's it's kind of really like a methodology that that you end up hunting yeah yeah well so do you guys i'm sorry i'm kind of no go ahead yeah, you're, right. gonna, go ahead. You're, asking, you're asking good questions sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to know some stuff um so do you guys pretty much strictly bow hunt or do you gun hunt do you have a a preference i assume yeah i'm more of a hunter but i i hunt with a gun but i bow hunt mostly Uh, i take the bow hunting more seriously we get a long season here we start in uh you know early september and uh often go through january um so we get plenty of time to hunt but we only get one buck in that time frame in our home state um but uh, we only get uh nine days with a gun and then uh, wow. I think another nine days, but it's right after the gun season opens with a muzzle loader. Have you guys ever hunted down here in the South? I assume. I hunted uh, Alabama once. This is, I've only been that far South once. Man, you need to come, you need to come hunt some public land down here in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how did it's you do? Different. How did that turn out for you? Uh, I had uh, gotten invited to uh, the Buckmaster Classic. It was back in the nineties. Yep. And uh, I shot a I shot an eight pointer and uh, somebody stole it. <laughs> oh wow! No yeah. kidding. Welcome to Alabama. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It was it was funny because it was a small buck and uh, I only shot it because it was uh, they were doing a uh, food drive for the hungry, so the mm. deer were being ground up and given to the hungry, and yeah. so they kind of wanted everybody to shoot one, and so I took one deer and then I was holding out for a you know something bigger. Um, and, uh, it was kind of funny because, uh, the night after I shot the buck, uh, there's a big, like kind of party erupted out of, uh, everybody down there. And, uh, Jeff Fox already was down there and, uh, Wade Boggs and they're really rowdy <laughs> <laughs> they got kind of drunk and wild. And, uh, 
Jackie Bushman, who runs Buckmasters, was getting a little upset with everybody. <laughs> and in the morning, I woke up with kind of a hangover with him pounding on the door, and I'm like, oh, no. I <laughs> 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 the cabin door, and I'm like, uh, what, what's what's the issue? And he goes, we got a problem. And I'm like, what happened? And he goes, somebody stole your deer head. And I just started laughing because I thought I was going to yell. He's like, we'll buy one that looked like. I said, dude, you think I wanted the head that bad? He can have it. And he literally, uh, he cut the head off the deer on the uh, game pole right in the middle of camp. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's, Good Lord. Welcome to Alabama, right? Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, That's so fun. being you mostly bow hunt, what's your, your bow setup? I'm using a prime. Uh, I got a new bow this year. Um, I haven't shot it yet. Uh, I shot it at the prime factory, but I'm waiting for arrows. There's been a shortage of arrows lately and I'm still waiting on some. Um, when I get them, I'll shoot a little more, but, uh, I'm shooting the new prime in line. Um, last year I shot that one that had the double cams. I kind of like that, but, uh, they're really making a big deal out of the inline. So when they offered me one, I took it. How do you like that new grip? on that that was that a nano grip yeah it's pretty interesting um i like it a lot um at the shop i shot it really well and uh it just seemed to fit me you know um you know how when you got a bow and you pull it back and you're just like right on target that's yeah. how it was for me and wow. you know when they fit you they fit you and i mean you can get that out of any bow it's just a matter of finding one that fits you and literally, you can take any any good bow that fits you, and you can kill deer. But I like the people right. that own the company, so I like dealing with them. They're really good people, so that's yeah. why I choose to work with them. So I was never, never a big fan of uh, Matthew's bows, and uh, yeah, we converted him. Yeah, this past summer, Jamie and I worked together, so we finished up a work lunch, and we were going back to the office, and we went by the local archery shop, and. I saw the that Matthews V327 hanging up, and I was like, that, that's an interesting-looking bow, you know? And so the guy at the shop, he said, well, it's set up. You can shoot a few arrows through it. And I said, nope. I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not in the market for a bow. I shoot Bowtech. I'm, I'm not, you know? And, and then Jamie kind of elbowed me a little bit you know just do it just do it and i 1300 test drives yeah i shot uh i shot two arrows through it and got me a really nice hat for a thousand dollars but it but like you said it was that bow it was just when i shot it i knew right then that it was just it fit me perfectly right that matters a hell of a lot more than brand name yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you it's like putting a hat on, you know, you put a hat on, you're like some of them just don't fit right. right. You put the right one on, that's that's the one you want. Yeah. It seemed to be that Matthew's hat that fits so that well. Matthew's hat fits my head. <laughs> <laughs> it fits it real well. Well, I shot a switchback for God, 12, 13 years, and and now I've got the uh, the uh, triax. So they're good bows. Yeah. If I'm I was a better hunter, I'd probably kill more deer. I'm still I'm still the only one in the bunch that doesn't shoot a Matthews. No, we'll get you converted, right? <laughs> well, and that was you talk about liking the guys with Prime. Um, so it was one of the interviews I heard of you, or as a question that somebody had asked you that you're you're all about helping kind of the 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 little guy, the guys that aren't like spending millions of dollars on marketing, and that's kind of our our gig too you know we're 
We're not affiliated with anybody. We give honest opinions. We let everybody try whatever they want with these saddles. We've got 25 different saddles and, you know, and we we're do not, it all out of our own pocket. We yeah. Don't. We're, we're not yeah. paying for anything or, I mean, nobody's paying us for anything. So letting some of these saddles things are just, you know, saddle companies are now up and coming and some of these small guys are doing it in their garage and they've got great products and really super comfortable saddles um, and getting to meet those guys and seeing them doing this for their families is, it was cool. It was really cool. Yeah. So I, I can appreciate, you know, where you're coming from as far as helping out those, those smaller guys and supporting those smaller guys and, and giving them an opportunity to, to, uh, to kind of become something bigger. So I appreciate you noticing that. I mean, really, um, when me and Mario got into this, it really wasn't to make money, whether people want to believe that or not. I mean, obviously you, you don't open a business not to make money, but it was right. really about making a difference in this earth. You know, you're here on earth for a limited amount of time. And I really want to, you know, use my skills to put a dent in this earth. I don't want to sit in a dead end job where I don't have, I can't use my skills, you know, to, to my fullest degree. And uh, Mario's in the same page. I mean, we want to help people. You know, my goal has always been to make uh, people better hunters and hunters better people. And, yeah. Uh, that second know, part's the hardest they, thing to do. Right. Exactly. But you don't do that by uh, only helping people who can benefit you. You help everybody. Right. You, you know, and the little guy is pretty much more important than somebody who can help themselves. Well, I know, I know what I spent initially getting into saddle hunting coming from a guy that hunted lock-ons you know with a ladder stick and uh you an old, homemade lock-ons yeah homemade all yeah <laughs> yes. i mean redneck but uh and you know an old man climber and when i got into it i know that myself i spent you know 800 bucks or more just to get into the to the mobile game to the saddle hunting game and so when we this all started out with a was going to be a local cookout you know we were going to bring what gear we have you know do a cookout feed the guys for free give them a beer let them try out our stuff and so we made an event and when we we made that event some some of the manufacturers reached out to me and said you know hey i want to get some of our gear in your hands and and from there i was like well i didn't and of course, those were a lot of your your bigger, you know, companies. Um, and I was like, well, I don't think it. I didn't feel like it was fair to just kind of take their stuff and only allow their stuff to be in. So that's whenever I reached out to to Mario, and you know, and it's just it's completely blown up from there. But but the reason we did it was to give everybody a chance to to try it and make sure that it's something that you're going to like because it's not for everybody. You know, I mean, even, it, and it's a big expense. It's not, right. It's not go to Walmart, buy a $55 hang on lock on stand and hang it up. And you can't try them on like a pair of pants. Yeah, exactly. Right. No one so, out I mean, there letting you try them on except Southern public putting asses in saddles, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Mauro, you're a, you're a big crossbow hunter, aren't you? Yeah. For, more than 20 years now i i have an injury from uh you guys noticed that i wrestled for many many years so yeah i've hunted with a crossbow for
for that. Um, I really all like. I used guys have some kind of excuse. <laughs> no, <I'm> yeah. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really like. I've used primarily the main one that I've used for for the majority of the time are Excaliburs, and the reason why I really like those is just it's simple. It's a recurve. You know, I can change and adjust the string myself in the field. You know, and and whatever. And that's why I really like that. And a lot of Again, going back to kind of the style that that we hunt, um, it, it, you know, you're often going into areas where it's just it's rough and tumble. You're walking through thick brush, or you might get lost on the way out, and you have to plow through some stuff. And I just I like that bow because I can beat the snot out of it, and it still stays accurate, you know, no matter where I'm going with it. And it's just sort of been tried and true. Um, so I've stayed yeah. consistent with that. Don't let Doug give you a hard time. That's his thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, so, that's fine. I, I, I realize the, uh, the different camps that are out there between your <laughs> traditional bow guys, your compound bow guys, crossbows, right. and and whatnot. And it's different. Well, you know, it's, it's brutal, and, man. And I, I will say, I mean, and that was one of the things when we started this was, um, you know, it. We really don't care how you do it as long as you're doing it legally and you're doing it ethically, you know? And so like, we're not, you know, those fanboys, you know, that get out there, you know, or, or those hardcore archery guys that, I mean, good Lord, you get on some of the Facebook bow hunting pages and somebody asks a question about a crossbow, it, you're just, oh, I'm grabbing my popcorn because this dude's fixing to get just murdered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, you know, people have different reasons and different arguments either way for what they do. I think ultimately, you know, we need to have more people out in the outdoors, enjoying the outdoors, experiencing what the outdoors have to offer and bring to us as as people. You know, it's there's why I love bow hunting so much is that, you know, here in the Midwest with the change of the seasons those different changes of the seasons and that time of the year, you know, it, it's really a kind of a spiritual connection with the outdoors. I mean, if you spend time in the outdoors and really spend a lot of time in those areas and just listen to what's going on with, with nature and everything else, I mean, it get yourself away, man. If you're, if you're consumed with all the noise that's going on with life, I recommend to people get yourself out in the outdoors and, and find a pastime out there um, it'll heal you. It's it, more, more people need to do it for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a double, double edged sword. You know, you, 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 and same with, with us. I mean, part of the reason we do this is to help educate people, get people out. Um, but at the same time, you're, you know, kind of cussing under your breath because there's so many people hunting, you know, it, it so you're, but it, it, I, I enjoy the, the i don't know what the word i'm looking for just the to to have to get out there you know and get after it and find it i enjoy the challenge of 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 hunting more so than the actual killing uh of, of a deer well that's that <laughs> that's because we didn't kill anything last year <laughs> <laughs> we all did <laughs> we didn't everybody else did but you're you're right i mean i've, I've said that for a long time especially starting in july with putting trail cameras out and stuff it's it's yeah. the 
the act, the scouting and the act of finding and, and figuring out and learning and looking at trail cam photos and looking at the land and looking at sign and where to put a stand is, is to me more enjoyable than shooting. Right. Now, do y'all use very many cameras? Yeah, we do. I mean, there, you know, again, that's another, it's been a recent hot topic about cameras and whether they should be legal and used or not. I, you know, I think with, without a doubt, the trail camera has been one of the most, you know, probably influential tools that hunters have used to be able to locate and access, you know, mature animals and potentially kill those animals, you know, without, without a doubt. I mean, it's a game changer. There's with the use of, of wireless trail cameras. I mean, you can get Intel if, if you know how to place them in areas where they're, they're not going to bump deer and really be obtrusive. And just to gather that information, you, you can use them you know, effectively to really find out what's in that area, you know? Um, so they're, they're, they're pretty invaluable if you use we them right. Use them quite a bit. We definitely use them quite a bit. These guys use them a lot. Um, I'm too cheap to buy that many cameras, but <laughs> well, so Dan kind of, I know your forte is, is advice and, and different tactics for, for hunting deer. Do you, do you believe what you do up north would work here in the south? You it works it? anywhere. Deer or deer. So you hunt them terrain based. Deer or deer. They they uh I hear people in the south tell me all the time that they don't bed the same in the south. And I hear people in the north tell me they don't bed the same in their state as they do where I'm at. But everywhere I go, I see it the same. And I've been all over the country. I haven't been in the south as much. But I know a lot of people who hunt beast style in the south and have great results hunting bedding areas and hunting bedded bucks and hunt down target deer. I know people in Florida. I, need, I know people in Georgia. And uh, I get uh, comments back from them all the time. So if it's not working for you, it's probably because you, you haven't gotten advanced enough with the tactics of scouting. Um, yeah. It seems it seems real easy on the outside. But generally, uh, most of the people who uh, really get serious about beast style scouting and hunting and really dive in hard it usually takes them about three years before they start seeing pretty good success and yeah. it takes a while before they really get good at it and i mean i'm still learning and well, i've been we, doing a kid so i've watched i just re-watched the uh your public land challenge in indiana and uh some of the things i heard the guy say on there which kind of made me feel better about our trip to Ohio. You know, it, it's, you really don't figure it out for about three or four days. And then you kind of start seeing more deer, you know, and, and we, we, uh, we talked a whole lot of crap, you know, us Florida boys are going to go show these Ohio guys how to kill deer. And, and then we got to Southeast Ohio and realized this is not flat like Florida. Yeah. If it had been flat, no. we'd have been great. <laughs> or if we'd have been in shape. So, but it, it's always it's, something it's i mean it's true you really and i heard a long time ago that somebody said if you got five days of the hunt you better scout three days mm -hmm. and hunt too and you probably have better luck yeah uh, and i think we i mean we did we figured it out right there at the end i mean day. if we'd have yeah. stayed you know a day or two more i think we could have well we saw saw bucks they were he was a small buck yeah i mean Dwayne Dwayne killed a a stud six point up there and he probably weighed close to 300 pounds and he was eight and a half years old that was a big deer we had to drag that joker out 
which wasn't bad. I mean, it was on Wayne National Forest, which is unbeknownst to us, is probably like one of the heaviest, heavy, most hunted wildlife management areas in Southeast uh, Ohio. And we went into it not knowing that. But then when you got up there, like the amount of lock-ons and and stuff that you would find, yeah, it was just cameras. Yeah. Most well, guys that are successful on those uh, road trips uh, usually are successful after they go back, you know, because you go there the first time and in seven days or so, you got it about figured out when it's time to go home. And then, but when you, you could go back the next time, now you know some bedding areas, now you know some stuff, and you at least have a starting point. And they right. usually do better on the second second trips in. Um, I actually prefer not to go back to an area and, and hunt it again because I like the challenge of going someplace I've never been and uh, trying to make it happen. Um, well, that was, that, that was one of my questions me. that I was going to ask you was, you know, like, uh, I don't know the, what do you call it? The 400 pound slob. Mm -hmm. So did, did you hunt that again? So do you go back and, and obviously I guess you don't, you don't go back to those areas that, that you're killing. Oh, big I do. Bucks in. I, I do you? go back to those areas. Um, I don't hunt them as much as what people think though, because um, like just to put it in perspective, I hunt uh, 70 to 85 sits a year a season and i probably hunt the same tree twice maybe two or three times mm -hmm. but i do go back and revisit some good spots i do have pre-scouted spots um but i do move around and try new areas a lot and i do go after deer even in my even my home state and around my house that i've heard about rumors i've heard um and try new areas but there really isn't too much public land within a 50 mile radius of my house that i haven't been on every inch of so right so, wow so you well that's one areas. one of the things that we you know big bucks do what big bucks do and it doesn't matter where you go or you know and that's kind of why i asked because you know you tend to you can kill a buck off of this section and a, a good mature buck off that section another mature buck is going to go there because big bucks do what big bucks do. Sure. I've, I've got one spot where I killed, uh, eight bucks, eight years in a row. Wow. Nice bucks uh, on the same day, basically, uh, opening day of gun deer season. I set the same spot. We pushed it out of the same bed eight years in a row. Um, cause every year at that time frame, a buck would move in there. I got another spot where I bow hunt. Um, that I've shot probably six or seven really good bucks out of um, and put five or six friends in there who've shot really nice bucks out of the same beds. <laughs> you know, so those spots do repeat themselves year after year. And what a lot of people don't get is a lot of the bedding areas that you run into um, won't hold mature bucks. The different age classes bed differently. And you'll find a, a really good-looking bedding area that's tore up like hell because a two-year-old's in there and he rubs everything, but never seems to hold anything older than two. And I'm I'm finding that most of the big bucks lock into less and less bedding areas. Now, now, would you would you find it that the more mature bucks have a smaller core area versus, you know, the two-year-old, three-year-old bucks? Well, I'd say kinda. Um, 
each each mature buck seems to have their own personality kind of like people some of them lock down in a really tight little area and you can't even kick them out of a bed area. you can go in there and kick them out they'll run in a circle and come back because they, they just feel so safe there the trouble is finding that spot but right. when you kick a younger buck up they almost always take off run they're scared like hell they go find someplace else you got to go relocate them but gotcha. big bucks uh, they've only got so many bedding areas and they're a little less likely to run off like that and, and take off. They're more likely to hunker down, hide on you. Um, but not all are the same. You know, some of them I've hunted in the same property. I hunted uh, I, down and killed two real big bucks. And one of them I would see for a five mile radius if I'd be out glassing and stuff. Hmm. The other one I never seen outside of that one little core area and all of his shit antlers were found in there. Wow. Two bucks grew up in the same area, same situations, just two totally different personalities. Hmm. Well, that's something we get stuck on. That's the drawback of a, a cell cam is we've got, for Florida especially, really, really nice bucks on camera. And we keep getting them in the same areas, but we've been hunting that, that those same group of big bucks for four years and have yet, well... I wounded him once and shot over his back a second time. But <laughs> other than that, we were like, but it's hard to leave that spot knowing those deer are in there. Um, so we don't venture out a whole lot, which is probably a bad move. We probably just need to hunt it early season, see what we can do and just kind of bounce around and try other spots. And we might get lucky, but yeah, my way would be to take that spot that you got there and learn it inside out. Learn exactly where those be- those bucks are sleeping in there. Yeah. Figure out exact time frames that they're in there. You know, what time of the season. Because I find it's like a two-week window that they really lock into certain bedding areas. And then they'll move to a different one. And if you figure out those windows, whether it's with cal- trail cameras or by doing detective work, uh, then you can get really good at killing them. But you got to be in there at the right time frame. But if you're in there too early because you're overeager, well, now they're educated before that time frame. If you're in there too late, you missed it. If you're in there too often, they they tend to be real skittish or go back real far, or, and you don't even have a chance because they check out everything, they wind everything before they come out. So it's really yeah. about timing and doing it at the right time and then finding lots of situations like that so you're not just locked in after those bucks. And that's the problem you have with a lot of the um, newer guys hunting this, this style is they've only got one or two spots like that. They figure one or two out. And then they're like, well, what am I supposed to do the rest of the year? You know, and for me, it's like, well, go out and explore, go find stuff and fight that temptation of going back. I think you're you're way better off not over hunting it because what I see is as soon as you start putting too much pressure on those spots, like the spots where I go, I hunt them one time a year, even though knowing there's still bucks bed in there, there's still bucks going through. If nobody else is going in there, I just leave it be. Yeah. Yeah. What I see is that some guy, some kid or some guy local or something will find that spot, you know, especially if I kill something there on video or something. They'll go in there, they'll set up a stand, they'll start going in there all the time, right? And you'll watch that place just die, no sign. And they might only go hunt there, say, five times a year. You'll watch that place just die off from them going in there five times a year versus my one. And then when they quit hunting, it still takes over a year before the bucks start coming back. And I've watched it over and over again. They really do not like that pressure. They'll put up with a lot of pressure, just not in their bedding area, not around their bedding area, and not where they move in daylight freely. 
Yeah, where we hunt, so there's just in our vicinity, within a 20-mile, 40-mile radius maybe, there's there's probably 500,000 acres of public land. Um, we have dog hunting. You have some archery-only areas. You've got um, a, just a ton of opportunities here. But there is a lot, a lot of pressure in Florida – and you might know this, that in the south, like all the way in south Florida, season starts in July. That's when their rut is. Um, our rut is in February, late February, and sometimes even into turkey season, you see bucks chasing does. But when when the south starts closing down and then central Florida and then northeast Florida, they all come over here for our late February hunts for the rut. So it just gets hammered with people. And we found in the last few years that hunting, like you had mentioned in, in a lot of your interviews, those overlooked places, those places that people drive by and either one think, well, everybody sees this, so somebody's hunting it, so I'm just not even going to try. Well, everybody thinks that same thing and just drives past it. Or they think, well, that's too small of a chunk of woods. There's nothing in there. you know. And surprisingly, that's where we find a lot of good solid bucks yeah and joe, me and joel found a spot last year where it was it was overlooked we watched this spot all year late primitive weapons comes in we go in and get in there and i think we counted 11 different bucks and i don't know how many does just chasing deer i mean bucks chasing does everywhere he was seeing bucks he'd call me he'd send me a text bucks coming your way sure enough here they come and I'd see different bucks he didn't see. And, I mean, it was just – and just in an overlooked spot that nobody parked at all year long. And and it, it wasn't a big spot. It was it was small, but the deer were there. Yeah. Well, we'd like to see you come down to the south and see if some of those tag – I'd be really interested to, to see how you put it together, you know, seeing it with a fresh set of eyes. So we've been hunting here. These guys have been hunting here for their entire life. Yeah. I've been hunting here for about 25 years. Um but it's, it's, I like living here. I like hunting here. I like traveling a little bit. I've hunted Alabama. I've hunted Georgia. I've hunted Indiana once. And when I went to Indiana, it seemed really easy because I was hunting a soybean farm. <laughs> and it was just a little sliver of woods and a field, another little sliver of woods. And I'm like, well, man, the deer, they let you know right where they are. But it took me about two days, and I saw some stud bucks up there. But bow hunting, they just didn't get close enough. Dan, um, you talked about pressure and hunting an area too often. Is that one of the biggest mistakes you see newer hunters or hunters make? No, they probably uh, hunt too far back. They hunt the same spots over and over again. I think that's the problems that they have. Um, it's hard to get people out of that uh, that mindset of uh, not hunting a good spot um, and just ruining it. And, and the thing is, uh, I mean, immature deer will make mistakes. They'll occasionally see deer. They'll see sign pickup or whatever. That's one of the biggest mistakes. Another big mistake is uh, setting up on sign. You know, uh, every place you see a giant rub, you'll see a, a stand over the top of it or a scrape line. And um, basically, you know, 95% of the sign you see is made at night. So you're hunting night sign. You, to me, um, everything re revolves around bedding. Even when you get into rut, when deer are out cruising and stuff, the biggest bucks still don't run around in daylight all day long every day. If they did, they wouldn't be big bucks. They'd die. Um, 
they make mistakes and that's why they occasionally get killed. But, but really when I kill them, even in rut, it's usually by pushing that envelope and getting close to betting, whether it be doe betting where they're hitting, sitting in secure areas right adjacent to doe betting or buck betting where they're betting to intercept does. Um, but betting seems to revolve around everything I do. And if you look at uh, the bucks I have my wall and the way I hunt, when you get when you get outside of my just nice bucks and you get into the to, to the real cool bucks I've shot that are all over five years old, mm-hmm. when you get into those mature class bucks, you know, um, take the top ten, six of them are from uh, uh, early season in the first couple of weeks of the season, and uh, a couple of them are from late season, and a few are from rut. Wow. When you get into my smaller class, when you get into the two or three year olds, the majority of them are from rut. But you get into those yeah. mature bucks, they're coming from mostly from early season and late season. And the reason there ain't more from late season is I'm usually tagged out by late season. Yeah. But late season is an excellent time to hunt big bucks. But catching them off guard in early season in bedding is a lot easier than catching a mature buck off guard in rut. When the whole woods is full of hunters. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I think yeah. I'm going to say I think that's the advantage that you guys have up north is pretty much. I mean, maybe middle to the beginning of your season is in, in depending on what state you're in, it, the rut kicks in. For us, we close out our season with the with the rut still going on. So. Like we, ours comes in the third weekend of October and goes through the third weekend of February. So, but then that, so we're hunting all season. I'm tired by the time to get to the here. rut. <laughs> so by the time you get to the rut, all of these bucks have already had a year's worth of pressure on them. You know, they're locked down, they're nocturnal, they're hiding. They've gone to those out of way, out of the way places. Dan, a couple things I, I heard you t- mention prior, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I had to Google what leeward, the definition <laughs> of leeward. <laughs> we just don't have hills. I'm 54 years old. I'm like, all right, what is definition of leeward, please? But <laughs> but you had mentioned in, in one of the, the interviews that bedding areas, when a deer leaves his bedding area, they'll leave in any direction, not necessarily work in the wind because they feel safe where they're at. They haven't been pushed where a deer coming back to bed is typically going to come with the wind at his nose. So he can make sure where he's walking is safe. Um, and that's something I never thought about. Like, but we also don't really focus on bedding. So that's, I, I mean, for what I'm taking from this is we really need to slow down when we're scouting and, yep. and walk Tried not nasty so stuff to cameras, but walk. Get in the nasty stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but, I think. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say you, you taught me something. I now know what leeward means. So <laughs> <thank> you. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I learned when with first hunting with Dan is, uh, you know, I think when young hunters are getting into this, you kind of got to break down. You guys said that you've been hunting your areas for like 25 years so one of the things is to take all that experience that that i would call it woodsmanship right that you've had and sort of break it down 
with what you've learned from that? You know, what are the what are the patterns of behavior that you observe the deer do typically in the areas that you hunt? And then really think about why, why they behave that way. A lot of the bee style way of thinking when you're hunting and focusing on bedding is is thinking about why these deer are in these bedding areas or why they're behaving the way they are for the terrain that you might be hunting and it's really a because it is deliberate there's whether it's instinct or it's learned i mean i've observed deer follow the same patterns generationally year after year in specific areas you know as if it's passed down they they know they know certain areas that are safe or they know key areas that they want to travel based on the terrain and it and you can start to learn those areas and that's where being mobile and and only going in during certain times of the year so understanding like i found a bed or i found a bedding area okay that's your first step you excited you found some beds but then thinking about why is why are the deer bedding here what's the purpose is it providing security or safety is it close to a food source is it is it more seasonal um do they bed here because uh there's doe bedding that's close to it or it's easy access or they can they can recognize all the other deer that are in the area due to a couple key features or spots that pool or attract all the deer um and then you have the factor of just pressure, people pressuring. You guys talk a lot about hunters from out of state moving in and heavily pressuring an area and the deer switch up their behavior. Well, the key is, is learning like those deer that are switching up their behavior to avoid people, they're probably doing some of the same patterns year after year to avoid people. And the key is, is figuring out what that pattern is. And then you being the one set of people that throw them for a loop, if you'd say, or go in and figure out what they're doing different to avoid most people and the way that most people hunt. You got to kind of think outside the box with it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for you, sure. So talk, talking about deer, you know, you said that, you know, it seems like it's, it's passed down like generational, you know, all the way down. There's a certain spot that me and my dad had hunted. We for years and years and years, and out of one tree that we always climbed, we killed 14 different bucks out of that tree. Um, now, the last buck was killed that I killed out of that, basically that same tree. I quit hunting the area for years, probably eight to 10 years. Went back in there, got in that tree, and ended up killing a really nice buck a couple years ago. Um, even now, the place has been cut down. I've gone back up there and kind of walked around in the chop and all that. And it seems like the deer are still taking that same trail, you know, in that same general area going the same way. Big so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Dan and I have scouted a couple of properties together for people and, and we've, people have told us the same thing. Like they've had areas of their property that they've had success year after year. And then you go look at this spot and you think, okay, why is the deer here? And you think about things like wind, thermals, um, security, safety, efficiency of travel. Like if you look at, you know, I know your areas are relatively flat, you know, in Wisconsin, we got a bunch of different topography 
that ends up making like corridors and dips and, and highs and lows. But a lot of times deer will travel in, in those areas to be most efficient getting from point A to point B where, the, you know, if it's a mature buck, they can check on different areas within the greater property by taking the most efficient trail through it. Like they figure out what that path is. And typically these spots where people are like, well, that's the tree stand that we've killed deer out of for years. If you go there, you'll see some unique feature that it has with wind or with access or proximity to the rest of the property that makes that spot a good spot to hunt. Um, and they, and people have stumbled upon it by accident because they've killed deer there year after year, but they don't really know why, you know, my, my challenge to people is to say, well, think about the why, like, why is that deer there? You know, try and find something that replicates that same thing in other areas of that property. So you're not constantly just pounding that same spot. Well, and to Dan's point, not only that, that area of that property, but once you learn that pattern, let's say it's, it's, it's a wind pattern, like how they're using the wind in that specific location. You can often take that same pattern. And when you walk into a brand new spot, when you go into that unknown area that you want to test yourself, you find yourself thinking about how the wind is flowing through that area and how the deer might be using that to their advantage based on how they're traveling. Or it might be a specific land feature, whether it's a little rise or the way that a transition or a cut is made into an opening. And I, you know, I often find myself asking like, hmm, are, why are they using this in such a way? Is it the same as what I've observed in these three other spots? And ultimately you won't know for sure until you throw a sit at it or you know obviously you'd use a trail camera but a lot of times getting a sit in there and actually hunting it is it really gives you that good intel to see how the deer are moving through there and then you can when you move around more you can build upon that sit after sit season after season and you really start to put all those pieces together and it that's where your kind of the real education starts yeah, I think I'm definitely going to take some some advice into next year's season for sure. <laughs> so Mario uh, Richard Kimball told has said to ask you about your last bow kill in Wisconsin. Who, me or Mario? Mario. Mario. It, I think it says kettles. Like Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think. Well, I think both Dan's last kill and the one that I did kind of probably exemplify these examples because. I spent a lot of time this year, as Dan mentioned, within the proximity of where we live, there's there's a limited amount of public and um, it gets a lot of pressure. We, we have access to some private. So I spent a lot of time traveling out west and going more north to public spots that I had never hunted before, you know, do some cyber scouting, locate areas, hop out there in the spring. Um, during turkey season, did some scouting and, and locate these areas. Um, I ended up hunting a lot of areas last year that had a lot of people traffic. By people traffic, meaning, you know, there are areas that are hiking, you know, frequent with hiking trails or horse trails or other activity that isn't related to hunting. And yeah, the, the area where I killed my buck this year was one that you know, it wasn't very far off of uh, a hiking trail. And, but 
I focused in on where I grew up in central Wisconsin was a lot of hilly areas. So a lot of the spots you would hunt, there were hilltops, deer would be bedding on those leeward sides, or there was adjacent bedding, or they'd use those those hilly areas to run during the rut or pre-rut. And I kind of, it took me a long time to learn those patterns. I mean, when I first met Dan, we started hunting this way and I started observing, you know, literally a property that I had hunted for 20 years. You know, I had kind of this awakening of the last two years that I hunted it like, oh, this is really specifically how I should go about hunting these hills. But the cool thing about that is I was able to take that knowledge and going out to Western Wisconsin that's pretty heavy in hill country and then going up and hunting in in the northern kettle where these spots exist there's land contours right so you have these high ridge tops that spill out into these bowls and there's often draws that come through in this particular area had a series of draws that that arranged up against this high ground and Another friend of ours uh, that I was hunting with, you know, he had done a lot of pre-scouting in the area and they, again, focused on this small little thicket that we had an idea that was holding bucks. Again, because there was a trail camera that was about 500 yards away that was connected by a series of several draws. So if the deer came down from this bedding area, they would connect through a draw to get into a next a, a next little high ground and then spill out into a low area where this camera was and there was four or five nice bucks on there so long story short i mean we went in and and hunted this over three or four days and um i literally heard people walking on the trail and about 15 minutes after that i had a buck come out of this thicket and follow this draw down out of bedding and uh, I was able to shoot him. Now, you know, that was a scenario where over the course of those four or five days, I put in sits in the morning, in the afternoon, and some in midday to kind of bounce around and figure out what was going on. So in the previous three sits in the morning, I had deer that were actually coming back <laughs> to that, that bedding area and traveling up that draw into the bedding area right at daylight. So one morning I had a deer that came in and the way that the wind was swirling, I set up just a little bit off, you know, in the dark, if I would have set up on the opposite side of the draw with the way that the wind was, I think that buck would have came up past me in daylight and I would have had a shot at him. But instead he winded me, you know, I heard footsteps coming up in the dry leaves, the deer held up, and turned around and ran off. And then slightly after that, I saw another buck just at twilight come up and enter up into the into the bedding area. So I sat till like noon that day and then hopped out of the woods for about an hour and then came back in. And based on where that thicket was, I ended up looping way around and setting up about 75 yards on the other side of bedding, which was in between where we had the camera and where the bedding area was. So I knew it was another exit. So I guess to put the pieces together, I'm kind of wandering. The first couple sits, I observed deer come down out of that bedding area at night in a certain way. So, so 
I put two sits on it to try to get in position to intercept those deer. And I could never get in position where I could shoot those deer in daylight. So then I threw a morning sit at it. And that's where I watched the deer go up into the bedding area. And then the final sit and move was to move to this other transition, which was really another draw that they were able to spill out of. And that's where I intercepted the buck coming out. Hmm. But I, I feel all that was based on the terrain and the safety that this one little section of thicket provided. Because you have pressure all around. You have hunters that, you know, there's squirrel hunters that come into this area. You have hikers and people that are that ride their horses through there. So they, they would tolerate all that pressure on the fringes. But they knew they could hold up in this one little area to be safe. So I specifically bounced around and how the terrain flowed out of there to intercept the buck when it came out. So that tactic of kind of working your way in and it's almost observation sits, you you know, it'd be nice to kill a deer, but you're kind of in your head. You're thinking, all right, I'm going to start here and kind of watch and see what happens and what these deer are doing and move to put yourself in a better position each time you get some more intel on when and where they're coming from and going to yeah the pre-scouting that a friend of ours had done in that spot really it that that paints the whole picture of what could be there when you go there to hunt right and then the trail camera picks kind of gives you the affirmation that there's some mature deer in the area so then you're like well this was this was leading up to you know a week before gun season so it was like i was getting down to the line of where i i was had time and I wanted to throw a stand at stuff to try to get, get it done. So for me, yeah, it was very much that I was yeah. going to go in, be rather aggressive. You know, my first couple sits were pretty close to that bedding area. But again, I very much was focused on the bedding area was to my North in a thicket, how I set up on it. I was thinking about how the thermals would be pulling down you know, out of that bedding area and how my wind would be traveling down the draw if the deer were coming up from access. Cause there's, there's a swamp that's on the opposite side of the road. And we were making some assumptions as to where they were coming and going from. Um, and then <clears throat> just based on when they showed up on camera, you know, they were showing up just at the end of daylight, you know, on this camera, or they were showing up at night on the camera you start to think about, okay, if a buck is here and it starts traveling, how long would it take for it to get to point A to point B? And how can I intercept or get myself in between it? But I think the the biggest thing that helped is actually going in there and sitting it and observing actually how the deer were moving in and out of there. Uh, and then, you know, setting up and getting fortunate to, to make the kill. And, yeah. you know, not five days later you know the friend i'm speaking of is joe rentmeister you guys know him uh he he killed another really nice buck you know really clo really close out of the same area and again his setup was in one of the close to the area where i had set up in the morning and i believe you know y you never know for sure but i believe the first morning that i set up and I had that heavy footed deer that busted me. I think that's, we think that's the buck that he, that he killed. Um, yeah. 
because everything that comes full circle, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, what what dictates when when you find a a bed? What what are you seeing? What 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 is telling you that that is a a bed that a mature buck is is using compared to any of the other ones that you would find? Uh, terrain and sign. So, um, depends because, uh, if your public property doesn't have very many big bucks, if it only has like one in the area, and there's one buck bedding there. He usually doesn't have to leave a lot of sign in his bedding area because, uh, buck rubs in a bedding area are, are not to attract does. They're to tell other bucks, this is my area. And if you're a mature buck, you got no other buck that's got the balls to move in on you. Um, if there's a lot of big bucks in the area. They mark up their bedding areas or if there's some competition so having rubs there is a good thing but you don't have to have rubs there so big rubs are a really good confirmation but not just in the area they have to be in the beds that tells you he's bedding there you know because they'll get up and they'll rub if they're if they're claiming a bed is theirs they'll put the rub right in the bed the tree will be right beside the bed um but uh Terrain mostly. The big bucks are going to take the best bedding area in an area. That's going to be theirs. Like uh, a lot of guys will tell me, "Well, I got this swamp, and the whole swamp is beds everywhere. How could you possibly hunt that?" Easy, because big bucks don't bed everywhere. Those are all the rest of the deer. So you just got to look at the terrain features that put them in the uh, specific spots, um, the transitions, the points, the the downwind points of islands, um, things like that. That put them in a specific spot you scout those areas you find the beds you make setups for them now if you don't really know for sure you might find uh 10 bedding areas and you're like yeah i'm you know i don't know if he's using each one of these but these are the 10 best bedding areas here he's probably in one of them so you make your setups for them and you hunt them one after another until you get your crack at the buck dan do so, you use sorry go ahead so, so how so you know, like I would say recently, at least for me, it, more so hearing it, I, I've known about them, but I think community scrapes have come up, you know, it's become a, a bigger topic for, for hunting. How much do you focus on those community scrapes for dictating where a big buck is? Well, um, if the scrape is in the middle of a forest, I ignore it. I basically look at the track and say, okay, the buck is here. If there's sign there that tells me it's a big buck, well, then it's important to me, but it tells me there's a buck on the property. Where scrapes come into to play for me hunting-wise is when they're next to a bedding area. And I know that sounds redundant, but it, it's the way it is. Um, my two biggest bow kills I've ever killed were killed off of scrapes. And both of those scrapes were 100 yards from a bed, and 100 yards from another bed and there were the two two staging areas met and the buck laid down a scrape not for does but to mark it for the other buck and uh those bucks would race to that scrape and put their scent down because they're competing against each other and uh most people would look at that and say it's a community scrape um but it's really like what i would call a bed scrape maybe bedding scrape yeah. um there's not a lot of them it's not something you see all the time. Right. You run into that. That has been incredible for me. And uh, 
probably I've probably seen uh, five or six deer or bucks get killed off of those in my lifetime. Um, that I'm aware of that's the reason. But scrapes have never really been a huge thing for me for mature bucks. Um, it's really right. this. You know, it's again, it's hunting, it's hunting sign. And, um, you know, if a giant scrape dug in the ground, if you found one and put a stand over it and you'd kill a buck because multiple bucks use it, hell, everybody would be killing bucks. All you have to do is find that hole in the ground, right? Or if it was a giant <laughs> rub, all you have to do is find that giant rub and, or the rub line and you'd kill a buck. Everybody's got stands on those. Not everybody's killing big bucks. You get enough glimpses in your lifetime that a teaser doing it. Or you put a camera there and you get pictures of that buck just after dark or just before daylight. Or once during the rut, he comes through in daylight. So you play that game where you just keep going back. But it's a game. You want to kill bucks consistently, you got to go in and hunt them where they move consistently in daylight and you got to be there the right day. See, so our friend Scott asked to, uh, to ask you about hunting moon phases. What's your you... thought on that? Well... I think moon phase makes a difference. Um, I think moon overhead makes deer move a little earlier. Um, I've seen deer in rut move right to the numbers, you know, day after day as the moon time shifted, I've seen deer move during that. Um, but to me, again, mature bucks are pretty nocturnal. And I usually hit them, you know, in that evening time, last half hour, that morning time, first half hour. And I'm within a range of their bedding area that if they're there, they're coming past and it doesn't matter what the moon is. Yeah. Yeah. So also to follow that question up with, do you hunt only when it's the right time to hunt or do you just hunt whenever you have the opportunity to? Now, will you not go hunt because the wind's not right, the weather's not right, you know, something, or do you just get out there when you can get out there? The weather is always right. The time is always right. You just got to be right. right. right? So I've had people tell me it's too hot to hunt. It's 100 degrees out. I ain't hunting today. What are you, nuts? You're going to see no deer. Nothing's going to move in this weather. Um, I shot a really nice 14-pointer on one of those days when all my friends went home when I sat on a water hole next to the bedding area. You know, um, I've had Was people tell me. That, the one that jumped in after you shot him? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've shot uh, bucks when it's really windy and used that wind. To slip into a bedding area I couldn't hunt otherwise because they'd see me slipping through the brush. But now with all the stuff moving around in the wind, I could sneak in. I, You know, I've hunted on rainy days when crunchy leaves were keeping me from getting into bed. Every single day has an advantage. So I'm waiting for rain days for certain areas. I'm waiting for wind days for other areas. I'm waiting for hot days for certain areas. I'm waiting for a cold front to get them to move a little further out of this one area over here. Because I can't get close enough to the bed. Every day has an advantage. And as a hunter, the best thing you can do is to start to learn those advantages instead of using that as an excuse to stay home and sit on the couch. Yeah, they figure those deer live in that their entire life. It's it's something they're used to. It's, it's our comfort level that keeps us from getting out yeah, there. What are, you know, what are they doing because of that weather? Right. They still got to eat. They still got to eat. Yep, still they still got to eat deer. Yeah. And a lot of those extreme days like that is where no one's going, especially where, you know, we right. hunt where it's a lot of people. So. Yeah, I mean, for instance, this year I hunted 
it was it rained all day and i think i ended up seeing almost 20 20 deer that day yeah i remember that yeah yeah and and uh, i mean shot a hog and i mean seen a lot of deer a lot of deer um nobody else was hunting i mean i had basically the place to myself it rained all day <laughs> doug's giving me crap for i keep moving my microphone <laughs> it's, it's right here in my face I think that's where it helps to, uh, you know, if you build your portfolio of different properties or different places that you're willing to go. Um, you may have a day where everything that you may be pre-scouted, it isn't the right wind or there isn't going to be the right access for whatever reason. Then, you know, that's where you got to whip open the map and like throw your finger on it and say, well, this place was interesting to me. I never got there to look at it, but so what? I'm going to go hunt it i'm going to scout on on foot when i go in and i'm going to throw a stand at it and hunt it that's part of the fun of this is not not limiting yourself to to the confines of you know a specific a specific wind or a specific weather pattern you know have right. yourself open to the fact that whatever day it is you could go try anywhere and and then focus in on when you go to that new area that you're trying what is the weather that that day what is the wind doing what are what are the thermals doing? How are you going to be able to access it? You know, and, and factor all that in and throw a sit at it. And you'll find yourself learning a lot, even in, in, in most cases in failure. You know, a lot of times you learn more from these multiple sits uh, out of the failures because it, you, you learn like, oh, that's, that's what they're doing there. I bumped that deer out of there and that's and then you think about why that deer was there um yeah and sometimes this happens over years you know you'll you'll go into a spot and you get an encounter with a nice buck and you fumble it up well now you know that there there's a nice buck bedded there now that same buck maybe he gets killed maybe he moves on but that area as dan had alluded to may attract other mature animals back to it so you go back to that pattern in the following year and you you go in when those conditions are the same when you saw that buck for what you to believe you know the pattern is of why he was there and you know i've seen it i've seen it play out i've seen it play out where it it works like you'll see another buck fill that buck from previous years hooves and be in that spot based on wind based on a food source based on the time of the year and you get that little window where you can go in there and and kill them and they're they're not suspecting it um and then guys, once once it's burnt you you move on to the next spot do you guys are you the believers in getting in an hour before sun up and sitting you know till it's pitch black or do you kind of go in when you can see a little bit or what's your what's your idea this one's this one's funny why don't you Jamie wants you to say yes. You go in at daylight because he's scared of bears. We have bears. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a bear scare me already. Yeah. It's a small bear. Come on. So that's another learning thing too. Like a lot of guys, you know, you want to have everything just right and perfect, right? You're preparing everything. You got your gear. You want to make sure, you know. One of the other things I learned from Dan is just like, you know, you got to go with the flow a little bit. You know, you're not always going to have the perfect amount of time after work to get into the hunting spot you want. You're not going to have two hours to 
get your access and everything set up. You know, in an ideal situation, you know, you try to prepare for that, but that shouldn't prevent you from going in and trying. So you gotta, I think, you know, you push the envelope. You know, I like to get set up, you know, plenty early to to uh, give myself that that buffer and kind of get a lay of the area when I go in. But that being said, um, I don't think it's necessary. I've I've definitely observed Dan and others and had it happen myself where you get in there just in the nick of time. You get set up right before the action, you know, the action is going to start and yeah. it's, it's all you need, you know. Well, what other yeah. questions well, you guys got? Talk, talking about bears, Dan, did you ever catch up with the bear bait buck that? that I did uh, not. Um, I don't know what happened to it. Uh, I did hear of a 200 incher getting shot in that woods. Um, wow. But I looked up some pictures of it, and I'm pretty confident that is not the buck. So I don't know if it got winged or what happened to it. I hunted it for uh, two seasons, and the third season, uh, it was just there's no sign of it or anything after wow. two years. So it's tough. Well, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no. I was just saying that's tough. Oh, <laughs> I would be sick. so on a, on a Dan on a personal note. I read your uh, your Easter post on Facebook, and it kind of hit home with me too because my kids are. I think you and I are about the same age. My kids are uh, nineteen and seventeen, and those holidays just aren't the same. And you wake up, you're like, all right, well, there's no Easter baskets for the kids, and you know it's just me and my wife. What do we do with this? So I can appreciate what you were feeling that day for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, so on y'all's Q and a that y'all did a couple of years ago, one of the questions for, for Dan, I think was how do you balance the hunting in the industry and all that with your family? And the, the one thing that cracked me up was, uh, you said when your wife goes to the bathroom, run out get in your truck and go hunting and deal with the consequences afterwards <laughs> so I don't, I don't remember saying that but it's pretty accurate <laughs> yeah it's the whole sometimes it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission yeah well have have you guys any have y'all got anything going on that that uh, y'all want to throw out there or Um, in a few months, in the summer, we typically do. There's a there's an event up in uh, north of here called Deer Fest. We'll be there again. Um, we do that event. That's a local one, and we get we get a lot of people there um, to show off the products and, and do things there. Uh, other they than that, uh, yeah, announced those dates yet? Have they? No, not publicly. Um, you know, they've sent out some of the the private messages to the vendors and stuff yet, but. Um, yeah. What about the the Mobile Hunters Expo? Are you guys going to that in Ohio this year? That one is in Ohio. We did get an invite to it, um, but I, you know, it's again, we have a pretty small group of people that help us out, uh, a team of like three or four. So it's just a matter of logistics to be able to get out to stuff like that. So that's another reason why we like you know connecting with guys like you and to get the word out too, because it just it helps us helps us because we're not able to travel and get everywhere yeah well we we appreciate it we enjoy uh yeah talking about your your 
your sticks and your platform. Well, speaking of platforms, are you guys going to come out with a platform if you don't already have one for saddle hunting? Uh, we do have a few things in the works for for that. Um, so hopefully before the season starts, we'll we'll have those have those ready. Smaller awesome. platforms. So yeah. I guess that kind of goes back into my question that I asked as far as where do y'all see? I mean, are do you see you guys as, you know, just a couple of lock-ons and different types of sticks or, I mean, what, what is your vision for growth? The world is endless, man. We're just going to keep building stuff. The thing is, I, I don't build stuff just to build it. Neither does Mario. We're only going to put stuff on the market that is, you know, proven, tested, and that we love. You, you know what I mean? I'm not selling stuff to sell stuff and neither is Mario. We're, we're in this to make innovative products right. that are standalone. I, I mean, we want to be the first ones to, to make stuff in certain arenas and uh, and make great products. Yeah, well, you're on the right track for sure. Maybe, can y'all come out with a big buck finder for the South? <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, man, we've been at it for almost an hour and a half. I could go on for I mean it's no, a really, wealth I, of information. Enjoyed, it's just enjoy the information and so uh if anybody's so, got any uh, questions about us, you, you know, um they can check out our YouTube page. Um we've got some really good tactical videos on there that explain in depth how we go about you know scouting these areas and getting on these big bucks and really kind of go in depth in hunting videos on how we you know find these bucks to scout you know the my uh, hunt from last year's on there where uh, I literally, and if you go back through the videos, you'll find the hunt from the year before. Remember I said I hunt these spots once a year. The year before yeah. I had found the bed, figured out where the deer was bedding, figured out that route into the bed. They went in there and got busted by does when he was coming in and I waited a year and killed him the next year, that six-year-old buck. There's all kinds of videos like that. There's 300 and some videos in there, all yeah. tactical, all teach you something about the bedding. And, and what me and Mario have learned, there's videos with Mario in there, there's videos with me in there. Awesome. So you going to bring back the long hair? Um, I really <laughs> that while I'm sleeping. My wife don't like that long hair. <laughs> I, I just cut mine off. It was down past my shoulders quite a bit. And I was... Uh, Called him the I silver saw, mullet. Yeah. The silver, yeah, I was the silver mullet. <laughs> All gray and long, and I just looked creepy with long hair so (laughs) my wife likes things the same i mean she's mad at me because i lost 60 pounds i thought i looked nice now you know and uh she's like fat guys are where it's at (laughs) 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 but how how did you drop that 60 pounds i know Uh, they shouldn't have anything to do about deer hunting but (laughs) you have to uh, watch you have to watch the training video he's got yeah All right. But we talk All about right. it in the video. Pretty, it's pretty funny. I'm in hunting but, uh, beast weight loss program. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I gave up the 20 candy bars a day. The 12 yeah, pack of Coke. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so you doing the uh, public land challenge again? Yeah, they don't tell me where it's going to be at till last minute, so I have no idea where. Um. Maybe it's going to be in the south this year. I don't know. I'm just thinking north, uh, south meets north, man. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, yeah. that's right. That Southern public that put cool. there. <laughs> right. We're See, running out of states done? up here, so. Yeah. Well, that'd be cool. You're always invited down here, man. We'd love to see you come down and, and put some of those tactics to work here. Yeah. Your uh, wife would would love you because we're like 20 minutes from the best beaches in. Yeah, in if the I get her near States. Florida, she ain't going to want to go home. She loves uh, DeSantis. <laughs> and, uh, she's always trying to get me to move to Florida. I'm, I'm like, well, let's go to Alaska. You know? Right. <laughs> well, that's 180 degrees. <laughs> right, right. I like cold. She likes hot. And yeah, she likes Florida yeah. a lot. Yeah, well, here in the Panhandle, man, we got beautiful beaches, good hunting opportunities. There's, we've got a military base that's got about two hundred fifty thousand acres you can hunt, and then you've got some state land just north of here that's got about two hundred, hundred ninety, hundred ninety thousand acres. Yep. Yeah, a lot of big timber there, though. It's yeah, it's a lot of the same looking wood. Yeah, the hunting public actually turkey hunted when they came, when they did Florida. We assume. Yeah, no, they 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 hunted Blackwater, right? You know, which is right here. Yeah. So, so what is the topography like? You know, mainly where you guys are at. You said it was flat, but what flat. What kind well, of there, tree did you get? Lowland areas. So, like, there's there, there's a little bit of a little bit of swamp area. Um, mm -hmm. we're not your typical. You know, when you when most people think of Florida, they think of you know, Mickey Everglades. Mouse and, and the Everglades and, and we're more lower Alabama. So okay. lots of pine plantations, um, pine thickets. Yeah, most of it is almost all of the wildlife management areas we have here are under a, a timber management program. A lot of scrub oaks. So it's, uh, yeah, lots, lots and lots of pines. If you've got an elevation change, it may be, 80 foot at the most at yeah. the most that's a that's a stretch yeah you know um and it's but, not it's more bottoms not hills <clears throat> excuse me it's more bottoms not hills so you know you'll you'll go down but you're i mean it's not there's nothing that's really straight down it's it's all just kind of rolling so it's but more it, so you get more you get more hard cuts and the change in the trees yes um, yeah and, and hard edges the, okay yeah, yeah, hunting the, hunting those edges of the planted pines, uh, you know those those areas where the planted pines go up to your your creek bottoms, um, where mature timber meets planted pines, newer timber, yeah, you get like you know three or four year old pines that are you know six or eight foot tall, and right, I mean it's a dead straight line, and the timber next to it is you know thirty year old pines. Okay, so, so you get a lot of those lower pines are kind of. They're not navigable. I mean, they're are they grown together pretty thick, so they could provide. Yeah, yeah. And, and for the most part, cover. they are. But there there are some of those pine thickets you can kind of navigate your way through. But I mean, you can't see but a couple feet. And this in front is where of you. this is where saddle hunting can come in because right when any they, kind of when they hunting. clear cut and clear cut and plant, a lot of times they'll leave those random oak trees yep. out there. And if you can get up in one of those oak trees, you're sitting in their bedroom. So saddle hunting will allow that to happen. You know, it's it's uh it's kind of opened my eyes to, to new opportunities of places we've never hunted that we've walked by a million times. Yeah, well, just it kind of makes me think of you know how you guys can hunt those hard cuts and hard transitions, or at least walk them. Just get out and walk. You know, we'll walk different 
what we call transitions or different elevation lines to just see how properties lay out, you know, and you'll just, just, you'll walk them to see the sign that's coming in and out of those different changes in topography, you know, and how the deer might be using them. You know, so those thicker lawyers or do they do clear cutting in there and then you have oh, secondary yeah. growth. Yeah. So yeah. you have those yeah. areas of secondary growth that, that come up. What typically yeah. grows back in those areas? They'll replant it with pine. It. Yeah, plant it with okay. pine. So okay. we've got like what they call a sand pine, which is a short needle pine. Then we got the long leaf pine. And they go in, they're trying to get rid of all, you know, most places are getting rid of all sand, you know, trying to get rid of sand, the uh, the sand pine and go into all long leaf. So the sand, sand pines aren't natural. They were, it, it was actually designed for erosion control. Okay. And it's a, basically an invasive species of, of tree. They grow very fast. You know, and you one of the it. things that we have found recently with the with the buildup of e-scouting and, you know, Onyx and Hunt Stand is a lot of the places that we are finding the best buck sign are on those contour lines. Oh yeah. And you can you can go pretty much anywhere and find that bold contour line and that's where you're gonna find a lot of your buck sign. And I think that's kind of that's universal. Yeah, because we saw that in Ohio. Yeah, and, and just last year, kind of realized that that you'll get on a scrape line or a rub line, and you'll look at the topography on your onyx, and you are following a, a contour line. You know, it's it was pretty interesting. Elevation is huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they'll like to use faint changes in elevation a lot of times to travel through mm -hmm. a property pretty efficiently um that's kind of a it's a cool thing to you know when you you put it together on a walk and then you'll actually see deer do it year after year it's it's kind of a cool little piece of intel to put together so you said you have river bottom areas too do you get any sort of different uh vegetation that grows up around those you get water oaks and yeah it's uh and again, it doesn't, it's not much of a swamp area. No, it's just like, it's mainly like, it's like a, a live spring creek, basically. So it's crystal clear water. Some of, sometimes, I mean, in places it's really deep and it's really wide to get across. In other places, I mean, you just step across it. But the, again, like, it, it doesn't, there's not a lot of old woods, I guess, you know, it would be the, the best answer to that. A lot of, a lot of what we hunt is timber management. So they will, they will cut as close as they can to that river um, without getting their skitter stuck. So you don't have a lot of that old mature timber on those river bottoms yeah, until you get into your, your privates, your private hard, land. Those hardwoods don't get very big. They, right. They, it's all pine. It's about money with those pine trees. Yeah, we, you know, we had, we had a, a few good deer on camera um, a couple years ago. One we called Crab Claw, the other one we called Elvis. And looking at, we put a camera out and put it on video mode. And I was, I had checked these cameras and I was looking through the footage of it and everything. And I noticed I was, I was watching this small eight point, you know, kind of start hooking a tree right in front of the camera. Well, in the background, you got you got a bunch of palmetto flats too. So in the background, there's palmetto beds, and there's a creek 
that butts right up to it. It's like a tie-dye swamp. So I mean, we have a couple of tie-dye swamps. It's pretty much you can't get through there. So I noticed in the background this the buck we call Ellis, which he's a mainframe 10, ends up he's a 14, but he's got kickers, you know, that make him the 14, just stands up in the palmetto bed. Next to him, just a couple seconds later, this big crab claw eight point stands up next to him. And then some more bucks start. They're all bedding. I mean, they don't, our bucks don't break up here out of their bachelor groups till almost late December, sometimes early January. They stand up out of these palmetto beds and start meandering around. And this is like right at the break of daylight and start noticing these bucks. And then right behind them is that thick tie dye swamp 10, 15 yards away. And now we put cameras in there again this year. No sign of either of those bucks. Did the hogs move in there? No. Was um, there a bear? No bears. Was there a bear? <laughs> Not that I know of. Well, actually, there are bears close to that. Joel seen five last year or year before last. But, you know, it, it, it got a lot of pressure over there. Um, we had found these bucks and didn't, you know, we, we trying to find the right time to hunt these deer trying to find a route we can get in without being detected by these bucks. Of course, it gets later in the year, gets lots of pressure, these bucks disappear. Yeah. Has Elvis left the building? Uh, pretty much. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, dude, how long you guys, are you, uh, where have we been at it? An hour and a half now. Yeah. Is there anything yeah, else you guys need to, to get out there? I know Doug already asked you that, but we don't want to keep you guys all night. We could, just sit around here and do a campfire talk, but I'm sure you got things you need to do. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Unless you guys got any more questions or anything. So no, but we do oh, we, hundreds of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we'll get to get a chance to talk to you guys again and maybe someday sure. meet you face to face and share. Well, I, I was looking into that deer fed last year's was August 6th through the 8th or something like that. Um, so I don't, I may, that may be something I'll, I'll venture off to once they release the date this year. I looked at tables to do a booth, but they're the only application I found was from 2021. Gentlemen, thank you guys so much. Yeah, we, we appreciate, appreciate your, uh, your support with sending us the sticks and, and, uh, appreciate the info and the swag Absolutely. and all the swag and stuff. Those guys dig the, the stickers and the hats. And so thank you guys and sure. we'll do our best to, to keep talking you up out there because you've got a, a killer product for sure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys. Appreciate it. All right, All right. gentlemen. You all have Thanks. a good night. Yes, sir. Thank y'all. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.